0: The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles tonight. Let's go to the book of Luke in chapter number twenty-three. We've been making our journey with Jesus here through this portion of uh, the book of Luke. The physician, as he has, uh, through eyewitness accounts and uh, and a great deal of an important and dedicated study of the life of Christ, has brought this uh, this most excellent, as he, as he says, or this perfect um, understanding of the life of Jesus Christ as he opens up the book, of course. And uh, now we're in chapter number 23 and uh, we've been seeing Jesus' last days before His crucifixion. We have seen His trial uh, before the Sanhedrin, His trial before Pilate, and then, of course, Herod. And as we left off last week, we read in verse number 12 that in that same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And so here are two men uh, not really caring for one another. They didn't uh, mind if their paths ever crossed. In fact, if they did, They wouldn't mind if they took care of one another in a bad way, if you may, you know what I mean? And uh, just uh, got rid of the other. They were not friends at all, but they were brought together uh, for this hatred and uh, just this nuisance in their mind of this man named Jesus. We're going to pick up here in verse number 13 tonight. We're going to read down through verse number 25, and uh, as we've seen these... um, these different trials that have taken place, we're going to notice his, his punishment. Jesus' punishment is demanded of the people here. So look at verse number 13 with me. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. Uh, And uh, lo, uh, nothing worthy um, of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no uh, cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were insistent with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required And he released unto them uh, him that for sedition and murder was cast in the prison whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Our Father, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your house again. Uh, We thank you for the services you gave us this morning on this holiday weekend. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for those who are gathered together tonight and uh, throughout this day. We thank you for those that are down the way in the Disciple Veterans Meeting. And Lord, would you just encourage their hearts through the lesson from your word that is being delivered there as well. Uh, Lord, would it help you to help them to be drawn to together and unto you. And then Lord, of course, tonight as we open up your word here in this auditorium, would you just speak through me, give me the word to speak as I deliver the message. And uh, Lord, help us to be in tune with your spirit that he'd guide us in this truth tonight, that we'd see your, your great love again on display as you uh, so willingly were willing, uh, were willing to endure that cross and experience the shame and and uh, the pain that you had to go through and uh, that you did it all for, you, for us so that we might be able to know you and have a relationship with you. Even though you weren't guilty, even though in your innocence you were despised and rejected, Lord, help us to see uh, your goodness on display again tonight. Help us magnify you in all that, you, all that we do tonight because of that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine what Jesus is going through thus far Or in the wee hours of the morning? He's been in the garden praying with his disciples before they're even able to leave the garden, these soldiers and Judas, they arrive, and Judas betrays him with that kiss, and he's taken into custody. He's ushered quickly before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night and uh, stood here in this illegal mock trial that they would partake in. Uh, After that is all said and done, before as the morning is breaking, he's ushered in before Pilate, and Pilate, of course, uh, looks him over and and, uh, does his part to kind of investigate the claims that were taken. And the People that had brought him are just that much more uh, uh, just angry and, and arrogant at what, at what claims they're bringing. Uh, they even get to the point where they say, "Hey, he's been stirring up troubles in all of this region, right? And that, was, that, that sparked something in Pilate's mind. "Hey, this man belongs to Herod's jurisdiction. I can wash my hands of this man, and uh, he sends him off to Herod, as Herod was in Jerusalem at that time as well, for the feast. Herod is excited that Jesus is before him. Because Herod's wanted to see some miracle. He's wanted to see this sideshow act, as we looked at last week as well. And uh, Jesus, of course, answered not a word to him before his uh, accusers there. Uh, after all said and done, he's sent away. He's sent back here to Pilate, and that's what we read here tonight. And as we understand, as we've seen over the last several weeks... As Pilate had an opportunity to recognize Jesus either as Messiah or not, Herod had an opportunity to recognize him as Messiah or not. The Sanhedrin had already had that opportunity as well. Every single one of us still have that same opportunity today. What are we going to do with Jesus What are we going to do with the Son of God? Will we accept Him? Will we reject Him? Uh, Will we think that He's a pretty neat guy? Will we think that He's a really good teacher? Will we think that He's a great historic figure? Or will we accept Him as deity, as who He is, as the Savior of mankind? We will either have to accept Him today or reject Him today, but in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we'll see tonight that while Jesus... Through it all could have had no fault found in him. The evil crowd is still demanding for his life to be taken from him. Notice with me, number one, as we consider Jesus' punishment demanded tonight. Notice number one, the declaration of innocence in verses 13 through 15. Number one, the declaration of, in, uh, of innocence. In verse number 13, again, it says, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have, having examined him uh, before you, have found no fault in the ma- this man touching those things whereof ye have uh, that ye accuse him. Notice verse number 15. No, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. We find the claim of the people that has been mentioned here as verses 13 and 14. Pilate has examined their claims of perverting the people and so on. They even went as far as letting Herod do the same. And all through it all, there has been uh, no chance to be able to find any truth in the claims that had brought brought, uh, Jesus before Pilate and Herod and ultimately back to Pilate again. But as we read verse number 13, notice this. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priest and the rulers, notice the last word in verse number 13, and the people. So before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, it was just a group of religious leaders. When they first brought on to Pilate, it was those religious leaders, some Roman soldiers, and Pilate. When they took him off to Herod, it was Herod and his men of war, as the Bible said, right? But now, as they're back before Pilate, sometime throughout this day, as all the events have taken place, not only is the religious leaders, and as the Bible tells us there in verse number 13, uh, uh, the chief priests and the rulers, but also the people. Just regular people like you and I have now gathered, and they are finding out what's taking place. They're seeing all these things take place. They're people like you. They're people like me. They didn't have a title behind their name. They didn't have any dog in the fight, as they say sometimes, right? But this uh, this unique situation had piqued their interest to the point where they wanted to see what was going on. They wanted to be involved. We sang we sing the song last week, but this, the line goes, ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. And while you and I weren't there that day, I'm afraid that if we were there, we would have been guilty of being part of this crowd that would have said, crucify him that would have been there just to see what was going on and got wrapped up in all that was taking place. Notice the, notice the claim that they had made unto uh, Pilate. Pilate says that he's called them together in verse number 14. He says, "'Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people.'" That word pervertive means to turn away from allegiance to anyone, to tempt, to deceit. And uh, so what he's saying is, you're telling me that he's perverted the people, that they've drawn them away, that Jesus has somehow deceived them, that Jesus has somehow turned their hearts or minds against the uh, Roman government, against the ways of Judaism. And what he's saying here is, I can't find any proof of that. You're saying this has happened. I don't find any truth in your claims at all. And the people were so angry that they began to invent even more false accusations against Jesus, finding any which way possible to be able to get their version of the truth to be accepted and to get their way and have Jesus ultimately crucified. See, they resorted to telling Pilate that Jesus had perverted the people. And my friends, that was an outright lie. Jesus had not done such a thing. Jesus was not trying to turn anyone necessarily against anyone else. In fact, when he was asked, he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And so as these individuals are saying, he's trying to turn the people away. It's ultimately seen that there's just no truth in that. We see the claim of the people. But notice the examination of Pilate in verse number 14. Behold, I have examined him before you have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. All the things that you're trying to tell me he did, I don't see any proof of it, Pilate exclaimed. And between all the time that Jesus spent before Pilate, the time he had spent in front of the Sanhedrin, and ultimately before Herod as well, Pilate is able to conclude that Jesus has not done anything deserving of death. Had he might have ruffled some feathers, sure, he could have been accused of that and found guilty. Had he kind of caused some inconveniences for the religious crowd, sure, yeah, absolutely, that could have been. But that's not worthy of death. And so Pilate says of these things that you accuse him of, I haven't been able to find any truth in it. Notice he says, I've examined this man before you. That word examine means to judge, to investigate, to inquire, to scrutinize, to question, uh, specifically in a forensic sense of a judge, to hold an investigation. It wasn't just some kind of uh, just passing by, just, you know, let it be and kind of wishy-washy deal. He, he did his due diligence is what he's saying in examining Jesus. But there was absolutely nothing that Pilate or anyone else could actually find wrong with Jesus. The Bible reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15, for we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are. Here's the key though, yet without sin. See the reason why Pilate couldn't find any fault, why Pilate couldn't find any any of these accusations to be true was because our Savior was without sin. He was innocent. The Old Testament of course lays out the principles of substitutionary sacrifice. One life was able to be put on the line and to pay for the sins of another life, but in order for that life to be able to be acceptable, the Bible tells us in Leviticus 1 and verse 3 that it had to be without blemish. It was a picture of an innocent life taking the place of a guilty life. That's the only way that this substitutionary sacrifice could work. If the one that was being sacrificed was innocent, In the place of the guilty, Jesus was eligible to be the sacrifice for sins and the sins of all because he was innocent. See, if he had been found guilty of any of these things, worthy of death, and had been put to death, he would have died only for his own sin. But the fact that he was innocent, the fact that he was not guilty, the fact that he had no sin in him, allowed him to be able to lay his life down and pay for the sins of another as well. And since he was innocent, he could pay for our sins. And Jesus was not just simply a perfect sacrifice, but he was also the priest that was able to present the sacrifice as well. The Bible reminds us in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 26 to 27, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. And so we find tonight this declaration of innocence. And number two, notice with me the display of cowardice. We find in verses 16 and 17, here's what Pilate's response is. I haven't found anything, reason, anything worthy to sentence him to death, but I'll make a deal with you, he says in verse 16. I'll therefore just chastise him, and then I'll release him. For of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. That word chastise mean to... Chastised with blows to scourge, of a judge ordering one to be scourged. See, because Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, that he wasn't going to find any guilt in him, and didn't want to kill him, he tried to appease those Jews that had gathered that that day and appease their anger by just kind of punishing Jesus, putting him through the ringer, if you may. He was willing to compromise and to scourge an innocent man. And hopefully that would solve the problem. He's like, man, I I can't find it in myself to say he's guilty and therefore sends him to death. But I know that if I don't do something, they're probably going to come after me. And uh, so to save my own self and try to hopefully appease everything, I'll cause this man to be beaten, ruthlessly beaten. And hopefully that will put them at ease. He says, then I'll release him. The word release, of course, is exactly what we would think it to mean, to liberate, uh, to let go, to be free. See, Pilate at this time would release a prisoner of the people's choice around this time every year. It was part of his desire to try to ease the Jews' tension towards the Roman government. This custom was meant to give the Roman rulers the appearance of somehow being merciful by releasing one person or one prisoner who had been condemned to die. Now, of course, they weren't uh, actually a merciful government at all, but trying to give that appearance of such, Matthew chapter 27, verse number 15 says, now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And so this was normal. This wasn't anything out of the ordinary. But we find here is what he's trying to do. I'll have this man, Jesus, beaten, and then I'll release him because that's what we do anyways. And so after all, since he's not actually guilty of anything, but they want him to be put to death, we always put, set free someone who's scheduled to be put to death anyways. We'll just set free this man, and it'll just kind of appease everyone. Instead of standing up for what was right, instead of doing his job as an official of the government, we understand the Bible gives us clear direction of, the, of why God instituted government in the first place. So hopefully their job is to restrain evil and to promote good. But we're not finding either of those things take place by Pilate here. He's not restraining evil. He's actually bending to it and he's not promoting good because he's trying to just promote himself. We find number three, not only number one tonight, do we see the declaration of innocence, number two, the display of cowardice, but number three, notice the demand of the people as well. Verse number 18, as we pick up, it says this, and they cried out all at once, saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Here's their demand. We don't want Jesus to just be beaten and then set free. Sure, beat him if you want, but we want him put to death. We don't want Jesus set free. We want this man, Barabbas. Verse number 19, it describes who Barabbas was, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. Verse number 22, and he said unto them the third time, why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were were instant with loud voices, um, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. Notice their demand for Barabbas here in those first few verses, 18 and 19. Barabbas, the Bible tells us, was a murderer. He was a thief. But the people demanded that he be freed over Jesus instead. Bible says in Acts chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Now it's interesting, this man man Barabbas, his name, Barabbas means the son of a father. Now that's An interesting one, of course, and in a way could apply to anyone, because we are all, uh, as as far as men are concerned, sons to a father. Uh, But Luke tells us specifically that Barabbas was part of a rebellion. He had committed murder. It clearly tells us that. The book of Mark tells us that Barabbas was part of a movement of rebels and had been in chains with other rebels. This is Mark chapter 15 and verse 7. The book of John calls Barabbas a robber, and we find that in John 18 and verse 40. Again, the book of Mark records that when Jesus was crucified, there were others crucified at the same time. They were also said to have been robbers in Mark chapter 15 and verse number 27. Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian Josephus, uses the same term of robbers to describe some of those who were part of the Jewish rebellion during that time. The question remains, though, could it be that these two men that were crucified with Jesus were part of the same band of rebels that Barabbas had been a part of and had been, belonged to, had been chained to in prison as well, and they were all scheduled to die together? That's a possibility, no doubt. Matthew tells us that Barabbas had quite the reputation. In Matthew 27, verse number 16, it tells us he was a notable prisoner, now that term "notable" could carry a positive sense. It could take it could mean that he was kind of a famous person, and uh, maybe he was a famous rebel like Luke Skywalker or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, but uh, maybe, it, but I don't think that was the case of what is meaning by a no, uh, notable rebel. I believe it was meaning the more of a negative sense that he was more of like a notorious gangster. He was one that was well known for his evil doing. See, the Romans, they considered Barabbas to be a a terrorist. No doubt some in that day of the Jews would have considered him to maybe be a patriot. But nevertheless, we know this man had did some evil things. Why he did it, what his motivation behind doing it, doesn't matter. We know that he was a sinner. And we find that because of being a thief, a murderer, a sinner, he was... Had, or had been sentenced to die. But instead of receiving that death, notice the people in verses 20, verse number 21. Speaking of Jesus, it says, but they cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. They demanded that Christ be crucified. The rulers and the crowd became even more insistent Subtly threatening to accuse Pilate to Caesar. In fact, the Bible records this portion, this story as it goes along in Matthew twenty-seven, verse number twenty-four. It says that when Pilate saw that he could, he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, "I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it." If you were to ask Pilate what he really desired to do at this point. He would have been, if he were to be honest, he would just say, I'm, I want to set him free. Jesus does not deserve to be crucified and put to death. Somewhere around this time, the Bible tells us in Matthew 27 as well, that Pilate's wife even comes onto the scene and speaks to him. The Bible says in Matthew 27, verse number 19, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Church tradition actually says that Pilate's wife was known as, as Claudia Pro, Procula, uh, and according to her tradition, it said that she actually becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. But even though she warned Pilate not to crucify Jesus, he wouldn't give to her persuasion. Instead, he bent to the crowd and, and to the Jewish leaders. It hardly makes sense to us today to... Uh, to see Jesus coming into Jerusalem just a few days prior on that Sunday and everyone crying hosanna and glory to God in the highest and praising his arrival and now on this day shouting crucify him it doesn't even make sense to even imagine that to be the case but the but Ma- Matthew the book of Matthew tells us that there was a small force or a hidden force that was actually motivating the crowd. Matthew 27, verse number 20 says this, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They were insistent. They they were doing everything to pressure for this violent tempest. And they put this pressure on Pilate to make this decision for their wants and desires. And John gives us one more argument even as to why they thought Jesus should be crucified. The book of John in chapter 19 verse number 12 says, and from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. If you might recall a couple weeks ago, As we gave the background of who Pilate was, of course, uh, we uh, spoke of the fact that Pilate was quite concerned with his relationship with Caesar and his political uh, career and his uprising. Pilate had been appointed governor in A.D. 26 by the Emperor Tiberius, and uh, to impress the emperor, Pilate wanted to try to place an image of the Emperor Tiberius in Jerusalem. Guess what? The Jews weren't having it, and they rebelled. So then, impress the emperor, Pilate tried to put shields, uh, put, uh, put shields with the emperor's name uh, in the palace of Herod. And again, guess what? The Jews want to have it, and they rebelled against him as well. And now they pressure Pilate where he's most vulnerable. Hey dude, if you don't do what we say, we're going to start stirring the pot saying you're not a friend of the emperor. You're not a friend of Caesar. You're not a friend of the Roman government. And they hit him where it hurt most, his relationship with the emperor. And if they couldn't get him to do their dirty deed for them by bringing these false accusations, they were going to do it by blackmailing him in any way possible. But before we close tonight, notice tonight, not only have we seen the declaration of innocence and the display of cowardice, the demand of the people, but notice lastly, number four, a directive that was unjust. Verse number 24, and Pilate gave sentence. The sentence should should have been, you know what, I know what you've said, I know what you've accused, I find no fault, he's a free man. But notice what it says, Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. Isn't that an interesting statement there? That the people that brought Jesus required it. Not the law required it, not what was right, not what was just. Not the fact that an innocent man had stood before him, found innocent, but what the people required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast in the prison, whom they had desired, but he deliver, delivered Jesus to their will. The sentence of Jesus is cast down here. It says he gave sentence, that he met, it means that he approved the decision, he gave a decree. This judicial language, of course, is just simply saying that Pilate rules that Jesus is to be put to death ultimately. Pilate has eventually now caved to the will of the people, to the pressures that they had brought, and allows Jesus to be crucified. Ultimately, uh, Barabbas is set free, as it says there. He's released, despite the fact that he was the one that was guilty. He had caused the rebellion. He had murdered people. He was a thief. And yet, Even though Jesus was not, Jesus was going to take that place on the cross. Mark 15 and 15 says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 and 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. There's a string of related words in our passage here that uh, they don't necessarily have that pointed or punching impact in our English language as it would have in the Greek necessarily, but they all relate together. Words like fault in verse number 14 or cause in verse 22, requiring in verse number 23 or required or desired in verses 24 and 25. And all of this was done to be able to give Pilate the fault that they were looking for to be able to condemn Jesus. See, Jesus had already been beaten with fists, but this was going to take it to a whole different level. They weren't just okay with Jesus being beaten and punched and mocked and ridiculed. No, they wanted him completely uh, just wiped off the face of this earth, if you may. Before he would even be crucified, notice in verse 15 of Mark 15, again, as we said, that he scourged him and then crucified him. The Romans scourged their prisoners with a device that we commonly know as a cat of nine tails, a whip that would have had a uh, a long handle or whip that would have had long leather straps of various lengths on it. And uh, attached to those straps would have been uh, pieces of of bone maybe or, or something sharp that would be able to dig into the person's flesh as they were whipped with it. The purpose of the cat of nine tails was to open up the skin and to turn the person's back into raw meat. The third third century historian writes about this. He says, the sufferer's veins were laid bare. The very muscles, sinew, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. I don't even think we can really imagine or, or fathom The beating that Jesus would have experienced as he's tied to a post more than likely with his back exposed completely and those men taking that whip and constantly just beating him. But it wasn't just a a slap. Every time those straps wrapped around his body and those pieces of bone and sharp uh, objects uh, just dug in, they would then yank on it to rip his flesh open. And the question then tonight is this, why would Jesus go through all that he went through? Well, let me just kind of bring this to a close with two things. Obviously, the reason why Jesus would go through this was for our own healing. Isaiah prophesied about what Jesus would go through. Isaiah 53 and 5, as we read earlier, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. The stripes refer to the markings of his scourging. Healed means to be made healthful. Peter took an interesting or took a look at Isaiah's prophecy in First uh, Peter uh, and uh, look at what it says there in, in verse number 24 and 25. It says, "...who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray." but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Why would Jesus go through what He went through? Why would He be beaten and scourged and mocked in the way He did so that we might be healed? You understand that every single one of us are born with an incurable disease without Jesus? It's worse than cancer, my friends. It's called the disease of sin. That sin stain that every single one of us would have, and we do have, And the only cure for it is the blood of Jesus Christ. And he went through what he went through for you and I to be healed. He did it so that he could take my place and your place. What I say Barabbas' name meant? A son of a father, right? In In a way, Barabbas is a picture of every single one of us. Because where he was sentenced to death, he was guilty for that cross, He was the one that deserved the scourging. He was the one that deserved the shame. He was the one that deserved the punishment. In that same way, every single one of us, you and I, deserve everything that Jesus went through. We deserve the mocking. We deserve the shame. We deserve the punishment. We, and each and every one of us, ultimately deserve an eternity in hell as a sinner. But Jesus took our place. I see myself in Barabbas' name. I too am a son of a father, and like Barabbas, I too am a sinner. Romans 3 and 23 reminds us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark of God's perfection. If you've ever shot a a gun or a bow and arrow at a target, you know what it means to try to hit a specific place. And I'll be honest, as I've shot Firearms or a a compound bow. There's been times where I've missed the mark completely. I remember being in the deer stand in Arkansas and uh, taking that that uh, pulling that uh, bow back and ready to take that shot at the deer, and it flying over its back and it running away safe and sound. No meat on the table that night for us. I missed the mark, and in fact, that's exactly what it means to be a sinner, to miss the mark for all have missed the mark. And by missing the mark, we've fallen short of God's glory, his perfection. Every single one of us are sinners. But like Barabbas, as Jesus died in his place, Jesus died in my place. and He died in your place. Paul would re- later write about the great exchange that took place on that cross in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 21. For he have made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him? Not the righteousness of God in our own well, in our own talents and our own uh, possessions and what we can accomplish and conjure up on our own. The only righteousness that brings us to God is the righteousness of Jesus, and He was made sin in our place so that we might be able to have His righteousness placed on our account. God took our sin, all the sin of the past, all the sin of our present, and any sin that we will commit. And he placed placed that sin on Jesus that day. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he was saying, I have paid the price for the sin of all mankind. And while God took the sin of every one of us and placed it on Jesus, when we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, he then takes Jesus' righteousness and places it in our place. And God looks down on us and sees us as righteous because of Christ's sake. Because of what Jesus did for me, I now face a choice. I can go on with my life just as I've always have. I can have to end up paying for that sin in my own. And the ultimate penalty for sin is death. Not just a physical one, but an eternal one, a spiritual one. We'll have a part in that second death. And my friends, the death that is speaking of spiritually is ultimately a separation from God forever. I can experience that punishment. Because of my sin, or I can accept Jesus' payment for what what I have done and accept Him as my Savior. See, my friends, if you'll believe on Jesus, you'll receive a new life, a life eternal. That's why Jesus went through what He went through. That's why, while they demanded for His punishment, He willingly went through what He went through. He said, I could, He he knew He could have called 10,000 angels. They could have delivered him from the cross. He could have called for the earth to open up and it would have swallowed everyone up that was there. But he willingly experienced all of those things for our healing and to take our place. Would you stand to your feet with me here tonight? Our Father, we thank you for this evening and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, would you take your word and would you help us to, to apply it to our lives that it would make an impact in our life as we live for you day in and day out. Would you help us to realize how good of a God you are and that it would affect our life for you? And maybe tonight there's someone that's in this auditorium that doesn't know you as their Savior. Maybe there's someone that just has been passing and uh, spent some time with us online tonight. They don't know you as their Savior. But Lord, if there's anyone that underneath the sound of my voice, wherever it might be, that has heard this message tonight, Lord, would your spirit convict them of their need of you, and would they turn to you before it's eternally too late? And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed here tonight, I wonder how many here would say, Pastor, I know for sure I'm saved, and I know that heaven's my home. And if I were to die tonight, I know 100% sure that I'd spend eternity with my Savior in heaven. Could I just rejoice with you? Would you slip your hand up and write back down as a testimony of that? Hands all across the auditorium. Praise the Lord for that. Will there be anyone here tonight, though, who would be honest enough to say, Pastor, I just don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that heaven's my home. And if I were to die tonight, I am not 100% sure that I'd have a home in heaven. I wouldn't want to embarrass you. I wouldn't want to call you out or anything like that. But if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, would you allow me to pray for you this evening? Would you allow me to ask the Lord to be able to give you the, the faith, to be able to trust Him and recognize your need of Him tonight? If you're here and you say, Pastor, I just don't know that I'm saved, please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up and write back down? Anybody like that here tonight? And one last question. Who here would say, Pastor, as we've been considering this, these days and this, this, this time that Jesus went through for each and every one of us, Pastor, would you pray with me that it wouldn't be just something that I know, wouldn't be just something that I understand, but it would be something that actually impacts my life that it would guide my life every day day in and day out that it helped me to out of love for him just be dedicated to his way and to his service who you would say pastor pray with me that i would never forget never a day would pass by a moment would pass by that i would have taken for granted all that jesus has done for me could i pray with you tonight about that hands all across the auditorium already this evening I'm going to pray once more. When I'm finished praying, the piano is going to begin to play. Maybe the Lord spoke into your heart. You'd come forward to the altar and just bow there. Ask the Lord to be with you, to help you to never forget His uh, great love that was on display during these days. Maybe the Lord spoke into your heart and not able to come to the altar, but right there in your seat, you'd lift it up humbly unto Him and respond to His word as He sees fit. Our Father, we come to you tonight, and again, we thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Would you just be with us as we enter into this time of invitation would your spirit start convicting hearts even now uh, through your word that has been declared as we've seen your ultimate love on display willingly experiencing the shame and the suffering for us so that we might be able to be healed and as you take our place so lord be magnified and glorified through this time of invitation and your will done we ask these things in jesus name amen as